The Lord is good. Amen. Well, uh, you could say we have almost a morbid subject to carry to, to talk about tonight, but it's not really morbid at all because we're, we're talking about death, by the way, tonight. And uh, I'll tell you, just keep in mind as we talk about death that uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen. And in his presence, there's fullness of joy. Praise the Lord. And so death for a Christian is a wonderful thing. It's a glorious thing. Amen. But we're going to address this and we're going to narrow it down on, onto this topic. And, and uh, here we are. We're talking about death and the grave. The first thing to keep in mind is death is a fact. Amen. Amen. It is a fact. Everybody knows it. And yet how often we don't think about it or choose not to. We don't prepare for it. The Bible says, and just as is it, as it is appointed, for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And then it goes on, Hebrews 9.27 there. You know, Dr. David Shibley, who's a great missionary friend of our church, wrote a book uh, in 2007 called Living as if Heaven Matters. And he wrote this, your most important appointment uh, ever is not far off. You have a scheduled personal appointment with Jesus Christ, and you will keep this appointment. And that's for believers and non-believers, amen. The most important appointment is yet awaiting us, and we do not know the day or the hour when that's gonna happen to us. We need to prepare for the absolute eventuality that we will die, amen. As difficult as it is, and as sorrowful as the events are surrounding death, we need to prepare. But the fact is, Many of us do not prepare for death, spiritually or otherwise, and yet it's the one event common to all humanity. All of us will face it. We try to dress it up. We try not to think about it. We push it to the back of our thoughts. But statistically, and statistically, very few of us even make a basic plan concerning our death. Less than half of adults in America actually make out a will. A survey in 2007 revealed about 55% of all uh, adult Americans do not have a will. And of those, only 32% of African Americans and 26% of Hispanic Americans had a will. Another survey in 2012 showed about the same percentage, and it also showed in the 2012 survey that about 63% of the adult population of America has no plan relating to what will happen to their digital assets. How many of you have books that you purchased online, you know, for different things? Some of you use Kindle. All three of you use Kindle. Okay. Anyways, think about also, in, in regards to this, think about while we're on this subject, think about what's going to happen to your digital assets. Who's going to get your passwords for your bank account if you die? Do they know where they are? Do you have any idea who's going to access your stuff after you're gone and have you left instructions for that eventuality? Think about that. This is an important aspect. Online passwords, bank accounts, ebooks, all of that stuff. You spent a lot, some of you spent a lot of money on ebooks. I've got a fairly growing, wide growing library of theological books on my, on my Kindle account. And my goodness, you know, I've got to make sure that uh, my loved ones know where to find that stuff. Amen. Because it, you know, it's, it, is, it is of real value. I would encourage everybody here, so what I'm trying to get to is to seriously engage in some estate planning. Obtain life insurance, which is cheaper than you think it is. Get your wills done or updated. 
Some of you made a will out 25 years ago, 30 years ago, but you haven't updated it since. Not even since you got married, some of you, or had children. You know, I, I got one finger pointed, but I got three coming back at me, you know, so. And uh, some of you have businesses. Have you developed a business succession plan? Have you thought about this? Who's going to get your business when you die? And have you laid that down? And do you have a procedure? Um, I was reminded tonight again of when I was in the country of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I was there with another pastor. We were teaching about 450 pastors who had come in for a quarterly Bible uh, seminar in theology and pastoral ministry, evangelism, that sort of thing. We were teaching that. And the primary leader who had been responsible in that country for the great work, great work, tremendous church, wonderful network of pastors, I met with him, and of course we stayed with him, and, and, um, but the Lord gave me a word in my heart, and I didn't want to share it with him. Before I left there, I told him, I said to him, Michael, his name is Michael Mongoni, and a great man of God, and I said to him, Michael, have you ever thought about what would happen if you were to die? I'm not saying you will die. But I felt pressed of the Lord to impress this on him. And so I said, Michael, have you thought about what will happen to your ministry? Who's going to take the leadership of your church and your ministry and your network of pastors and all the other ministries you do in the eventuality that you die? He said, my wife will. I said, have you told her that? Have you told your leadership that? He said, no. I said, well, you need to sit down with your wife and all of your leadership, and you need to write out a plan of what is to happen in the eventuality that you die. Of course, the DRC is a very difficult country uh, just to do ministry, and even for, uh, even for a, a national African, an indigenous pastor. And Michael, by the grace of God, had done a tremendous work. But did you know that just a few months after we had that talk that he was poisoned and died. He was poisoned. He's a martyr for the Lord. And I can't wait to see him in heaven because I miss him. But that brought, one of the things that did is it brought home to me the reality of the need to prepare for the eventuality of death. Because you do not, you, may, you should not, as Proverbs says, boast, you boast yourself for tomorrow because you do not know what a day may bring forth. Amen? And by his mercy... We'll continue on. Amen. So I encourage you all to take care of that. First Timothy 6, 7, in this regard, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Amen. What are you going to do with your gold? Stuff it in your coffin? I don't think so. You know, in, in, in regarding death counseling, grief counseling, you know, it really wasn't until the late 1960s and through the, the work of uh, Dr. Elizabeth Keebler-Ross, who began to interview people that were near death and they were going through grieving experiences and that sort of thing. And they voluntarily agreed to be interviewed her by her. And she compiled many statistics as to how these patients and also the grieving families and, and family members were the, the stages that they were going through and began to quantify, in her mind, were, were at least five stages of grief and they became uh, universally, pretty much universally accepted, although with some contention, but nonetheless, they are real and identifiable that if somebody's met with a, a, a terminal illness diagnosis or, or they've gone through death uh, of a loved one, then they go through periods of denial and then anger and then bargaining and depression and acceptance. These are the general stages of grief that people go through. 
And it was only until, it was not until the late 60s that the medical community began to deal with the aspect of death, at least in America here. In fact, now there's a greater proliferation of grief, grief counseling services all over. And you can uh, take part of those. In fact, next week here in Beaumont at uh, the Physician's Pavilion at Baptist Hospital, there's one on uh, supporting individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities that are going through life-ending illness or grief or loss. Life expectancy in the USA, I'll try to get through this quickly. The average life expectancy in the USA in 2011 was 78.7 years. Of course, Hispanic females had the highest, the longest life expectancy. So any singles out there, single guys out there, and you want your wife to outlive you, marry a Hispanic female. Um, the state of Hawaii had the lowest death rate in America. So let's all go. <laughs> Amen. And don't go to Mississippi where Cynthia's from because they had the highest death rate in the whole country and still do. And in fact, we're kind of, you know, Texas is doing pretty good, really, statistically, as far as the uh, average death rate, you know. But states in the southeastern region, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, and South Carolina had higher death rates along, I might add, with Kentucky, Indiana, and West Virginia. West Virginia, of course, we all know why, because all the politicals live up there. But anyway, <laughs> causes of death. Oh, this is so edifying. <laughs> but it helps you understand what life is all about, really. Amen? Because we just want to put it away. We want to dress it up. We want to forget it. But the leading cause of death in 2011, for ages 1 through 44, were accidents, homicide, and cancer in that order. For ages 45 to over 65, the leading causes were cancer and heart disease, with heart disease taking the lead for the over 65 group. I don't know whether they become so more sedentary or something like that. That probably has something to do with retirement age. The key scripture for tonight, let's get to the Word of God now. But God deals with all these realities, okay? Key scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Amen. A great scripture, and we'll come back to that and, um, and um, look at that in just a little bit. Before we understand more about death, though, we have to understand what man is. We need a biblical view of human nature, okay? And, and I think it's important. If you're gonna understand what man is, then you understand and look at death, you need to have a biblical framework uh, by which to have, or a lens to which, uh, through which you can look at life in general and have an understanding. We need a biblical view of human nature. The Judeo-Christian view of human nature holds that man is not an eternally preexistent being, but is a conscious, immaterial soul, which is a separate entity from the body. And that soul will live on in eternity after physical death, and that the soul is not the same as the brain, but uses the brain and body to communicate with the natural world. Well, I mean, let me ask you the question then, why do we have death? I mean, if we're created by God and the soul is immortal, why do we have death? Well, death was never part of the natural order that God intended. It is the curse for disobedience. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Hebrew kind of throws in this nuance of dying, you shall die. There's this point where you start to die and you continue on in the death process until your body 
ends and finishes, can't support life anymore. Death passed onto all men because all sinned, because Adam sinned. Where did death come from? It came because Adam sinned, and Adam, as the progenitor of the whole human race, is the father of all, then sin passed upon all men. And therefore all sin, therefore all participate in death. Death entered the world through sin and is part of the curse. Therefore, Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 8.10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And one more scripture, 1 Corinthians 15 but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So death involves our whole makeup, our body, our soul, our spirit, our physical body, our spiritual self, and our eternal uh, dimension. The wages or payment for sin is death, physical, spiritual, and eternal. We know this scripture, Romans 6, 23. Amen. Let's read it out loud together. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's almost the gospel in a nutshell right there. As Michael Horton says, as it is after the fall, we are dying from the moment that we are born. Just think about that. Death is called the last enemy in Scripture, for he must reign. Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So then the question comes, what happens at death? What is death? Well, physical death is represented in various ways in Scripture. It's spoken of as the death of the body as opposed to uh, as distinguished from that of the soul. It's spoken of as the termination or loss of life. It's a separation of body and soul. In fact, James 2.26 says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So it tells us basically, essentially there are a definition and a comparison with what real faith is. Faith is expressed in real faithfulness. Death is not the annihilation of the soul. You do not just cease to exist. A person does not just die and their soul just is no more. This is not a biblical idea, okay? Death is described, we're gonna cover this in just a moment. Um, death is also described in the Bible as an exodus. Can you all say exodus? That means a going out, all right? That involves departing from your body. Remember Genesis, Exodus, the second book of the Bible, a departing out. What did they get out of? They went out of Egypt, right? Luke, this is the Greek word, of course, for that, uh, for that uh, Hebrew book, mind you. Uh, Luke uses the term when he writes about the experience on the Mount of Tr Transfiguration where uh, Peter and John go up with Jesus into the mountain and Jesus is praying and he's transfigured. And Moses and Elijah appear speaking to Jesus about Jesus's departure. The word departure there in Greek is Jesus's exodus, Okay. Um, Luke 9, let's look at it. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and the, his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, that is the exodus of Jesus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem when he died on the cross. Peter uses the same word and also uses the metaphor of the removal of his tent. 2 Peter 1, I think it right as long as I am in this body 
to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off, the Greek word here is removal, of my body, the Greek word here is tent, where we get our word tent from, will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, after my exodus, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter is making preparation for the eventuality that he died. Amen. I really think it's cool how Pastor Ron mentions that everybody that Jesus healed died, right? Even Lazarus ended up dying twice. But don't you know the second time around, he wouldn't, you know, he wasn't too disturbed by it. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Because he already had been there. And Jesus is the expert on returning from the dead. Amen. Jesus is the expert, and we need to pay attention to what he says about life and death. Death is not a cessation of existence like annihilation, but it's a severance of the natural relations of life. I love Pastor Ron's illustration that he uses. Our body is an earth suit. You know, we think of a space suit. When we go up into space, you can't survive without, you know, without a pressurized suit that's full of oxygen and it'll protect you from, you know, gamma rays and all kinds of stuff when you're uh, high up in the atmosphere or in the actual space. You've got to have something on, amen, to protect you. Well, our body is like an earth suit, and that is an earth suit for our soul, which is our mind, emotions, and will, and our body gives us legitimate expression in the earth. Once our earth suit dies, we no longer have a way to express ourselves, communicate, or to exist in the natural world, and so all continue to exist after death, but in another plane, in heaven for believers in Christ or in hell. The two words soul and spirit are used interchangeably in the Bible. Death is sometimes described as a giving up of the soul and sometimes of the giving up of the spirit. Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Right? Uh, both Jesus and actually uh, the martyr uh, Stephen did that. The dead in some cases are named souls in Revelation and also other times called spirits. The two terms spirit and soul basically are denoting the spiritual element in man from different points of view. At death, what happens at death then? At death, the souls of believers immediately enter God's presence and enjoy direct fellowship with him, okay? We don't believe in soul sleep, which is the idea that somehow the soul kind of hangs around the body in the ground there, you know, until Jesus comes back, till the resurrection, and then it's reunited with the body. We don't believe in that because it's not biblical, okay? It's somebody's uh, idea, but it's not a biblical idea. Second Corinthians 5.8, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Amen. So once you're away from your earth suit, you end up at home with the Lord if you're a believer, right? And the thief said to Jesus on the cross, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is not down in the heart of the earth. Paradise is heaven. Paul said, I knew a man in Christ 14 years ago, and he was caught up to the third heaven. And then later on he says, and I know that this man, he's really speaking of himself, was caught up into paradise. So paradise and third heaven, same idea, right? So today you'll be with me in paradise. You'll be with me. And by the way, to be with Jesus is paradise. Amen. Hallelujah. 
In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pledges forevermore. For Christians, death is not to be met with fear, but with joy. Amen. Is it sad? Yes, it is. Is it difficult? Yes, it is. But for a believer, there is joy. If you're a believer today and you died tonight, you would be in the very presence of Almighty God, surrounded by an innumerable company of angels and the spirits of just men made perfect in the presence of God, all there worshiping the Lord and giving glory to Him and to His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Death is not the final deal. Amen. For believers, nor for unbelievers for that matter, because you will go somewhere. Physical death does not separate us from God's love. The Apostle Paul said, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Jesus. Nevertheless, he said, and in fact, he's called it, he said, that's far better. He said, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Physical death cannot separate us from God's love. Can you say amen? For I am sure, Paul said, that neither death, and he goes on, nor life, nor rulers, nor anything to come, present, and powers, etc., etc., you've heard it, nothing, not death, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Of course, the Bible does use the metaphor of sleep when it talks about death, but this is only because sleep is temporary, right? And so sleep is a, is a perfect an analogy. We use analogical language, metaphorical language, to refer to various things about God. We say God's arm or God's heart or that sort of thing. Of course, God's a spirit. You know, so but we use analogical, we use analogy to refer to different characteristics of God. So when we refer to death, or even when Jesus refers to death, or Paul or others, they use the analogy of sleep because it's temporary, okay? Because you'll wake up, right? You go to sleep and your body is resting, but it's only temporary anyway because when Jesus comes back, your body's going to be resurrected. Amen. Right. But your spirit, your soul is with God. And so the Bible likens death to sleep in a number of cases. The souls of the dead are conscious, not sleeping. Okay. When a Christian dies, as I've said, they are immediately present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Uh, John 11, Jesus talking about Lazarus. He says to his disciples when they heard the news that Lazarus had died, all right? Lazarus is good friend. He's, Jesus says about him, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. See, Jesus even uses that analogy about uh, that Lazarus has died. But I go to awaken him. Well, the disciples didn't understand what he was saying. They said, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. No, no, well, he'll get up. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, that is, the death of Lazarus. But they thought he meant that Lazarus was taking rest in sleep. See, So even Jesus uses this analogy of sleep, but he, but he makes it clear, the Scripture makes it clear, that sleep is not a, a soul sleep where Lazarus' soul spirit is just hanging around his body. No. Jesus goes and by the word of his mighty power, in command, he reunites Lazarus' soul with his body, and Lazarus comes forth. Lazarus, come forth! Glory to God. And I love that old ad uh, adage where they say, you know, Jesus had to say, Lazarus, come forth, because he said, come forth, that everybody that was dead would get up. 
First Thessalonians 5, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Notice, whether you're awake, that is, on planet earth, or you're asleep, that is, you died, you're still living with Jesus. Amen? You're not sleeping somewhere. So sleep here is just a metaphor. My desire, Paul said, is to depart and be with Christ, as I said. At some point, the book of Revelation tells us at some point that martyrs will be under the throne after the seal, uh, one of the seals is opened, the fifth seal is opened. uh, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So here they are, the souls of people who have died, that have been martyred for the cause of Christ. And where are they? Are they in the ground? Are they asleep? No. They're in the very presence of God. In this case, pictured as being under the altar. I'm not sure what exactly what that means. But nonetheless, they are there. And what are they doing? They are conscious. They are awake. They are praying and interceding and asking God, asking God to intercede. Amen. They are not interceding in terms of they are doing any kind of spiritual action to help us down here on earth. No. Their their cry is to God for God to act. Amen. And that's an important distinction there as well. But nonetheless, they are alive. They're not unconscious. They're not in the ground. They are in heaven and they're not sleeping. Amen. Jesus said that his father's the God of the dead, uh, rather God of the living, not the dead. And he talks about him being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's not the God of the dead, but of the living in Luke 20. You remember the story when Jesus, uh, going back to that uh, story where Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he appears in glory. Uh, I want you to realize that 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 Moses and Elijah had been dead for centuries, okay? But here they appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in recognizable form. They were communicating with Jesus. They knew what was going on, and they were recognizable, okay? So they weren't sleeping in the ground somewhere. They were alive and communicating with Jesus, and people knew who they were, all right? So just another illustration there. Well, of course, there are many false ideas about, other false ideas about death. Uh, Materialism, you know, I don't have time to go into it basically that, you know, we're all just a a chance co-location of atoms and we just got here by evolution and when we die, that's it. There's nothing else. But, you know, if you're a true materialist, then you really shouldn't care about your loved ones or your family or anything else going on in life because it doesn't matter whether you're alive or dead because after all, you're just a chance co-location of atoms, Okay. You just got here by evolution, and you just happen to be on the top of the food chain. But materialism doesn't work. The Bible is clearly in favor of a personal God with whom we have personal relationship through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen, amen. To whom we are responsible. Universalism is another thing. You know, when I die, I'm just going to rejoin the universal soul of all mankind. No, you're not. Yes, humanity, yes, of course, we have certain commonalities and stuff like that, but actually, individual souls matter to God. Jesus died for you and for me, amen? Now, of course, he's the Savior of all men, but especially, specifically, of those who believe. Jesus died for you as much as he died for everybody. 
So we don't just join this universal soul when we die because every one of us has got to make a choice of how we're going to deal with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the person of Christ. Amen. Reincarnation doesn't, doesn't fit the bill either because death seals the eternal state. Scripture doesn't know anything about returning like a fly or a beetle because you were sinful in your life. And you know what? Even if you did, let's suppose you came back as a beetle and your job is to live and be the best beetle you can. Did you know it doesn't matter if you're the best beetle of all, that as a beetle, you're going to still make, 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 uh, make errors and commit sins. You can't live good enough, whether you're a beetle or somebody else. You cannot come back and be Mother Teresa and somehow erase the sins of any previous life you supposedly had because you're too busy paying the debt for the sins of the life you're living. You can't make up the debt. It's impossible. Only the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary's cross for you and me pays the debt. Hallelujah. Glory to God. That just gets me all excited. For believers, a greater life awaits. Those in Christ will be made alive. Christians have a blessed hope, a confident assurance beyond the grave because Jesus conquered death. He reigns until death is done completely away, the scripture says, and then comes the end and he'll finally deliver up the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Through his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus destroyed death and delivered us who all our lifetime were subject to the fear of death, the Bible says. Hebrews 2.14, let's go there, Jessica. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I love this story, finally, of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember the story Jesus told in Luke? You know, the rich man and Lazarus. Rich man was a rich man. And Lazarus was a poor man, humble and broken. When Lazarus died, he's carried into Abraham's bosom, our understanding of paradise, beauty, rest, all those sorts of things. Lazarus, I mean, uh, the rich man dies, and he goes to a place of torment. And uh, he's clothed in purple fine linen. He fares sumptuously. Lazarus is covered with sores. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died, was carried to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, was buried, and in hell, or Hades, lifted up in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and sent Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Even in death, he has not changed. The rich man expects that Lazarus will serve him. And he calls out. But Abraham says, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. He's not asleep. He's in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. There's no such thing as, you know, Purgatory? Because you can't go from one place to the other. You can't go. Death seals your eternal destiny. 
If you know Jesus on, and you love him and you've surrendered your life to him and he has forgiven you of your sins and he is your Lord and Savior and you confess him before men and, and then he will confess you before the Father, you have eternal life in Jesus Christ and you will be in heaven. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you repudiate him, you have no repentance, which this rich man did not even after he went to hell. I like what Don Carson says, there are no penitent people in hell. They have decided that they want to go there because they have resisted the Holy Spirit and the offer of mercy from Jesus Christ. It's a sad thing. It's a horrible thing. We ought to compel men to come to Christ. I beg you then, send somebody to tell my brothers this is a place of torment. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. They've got the word of God. And they would not believe even if somebody would rise from the dead, Jesus said. Think about that. Well, I don't know about you, but what I, my takeaway from this is I'm thanking God that I love Jesus Christ with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I've had loved ones die, and so have you. But my greatest joy is knowing that my loved ones who died in Christ in faith, that they love the Lord, that they're in heaven now, and when I lift my voice in worship, I think of all the thousands and millions of people and including family members, my mom and my dad, others that are up there, and they're all rejoicing in the very presence of God, worshiping him, and I thank God for the promise of heaven through Jesus Christ our Lord, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, amen? And no death could separate me from his love. So what are our important points tonight? When we die, our soul does not simply go to sleep and await the resurrection. Number two, death separates the soul from the body. Number three, when separated from the body, a believer's soul is immediately present with the Lord. Number four, the grave holds a believer's body until the resurrection. Death has no victory, number five, and the grave loses its sting in Christ. Amen. Amen.